Our sermon text today is found in Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 17. Verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead... For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is the word of the Lord. Sing it, O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? O church, come stand in the light. Our God is not dead. He's alive. He's alive. Thank you, worship team, for selecting this song, and thank you for all that you do. And a look around, especially after last week's topic on the gifts of the Spirit, and I see the Holy Spirit's gifts that work around us everywhere, and just thank you for making yourselves available to the Spirit of God to build up His church, all of you who do that. And we're going to go a little bit further into that topic, not so much on the specific gifts of the Holy Spirit, but how we might look at that and apply that further today. Before I start, let's, uh, let's just open with a brief word of prayer and dedicate this time to the Lord. So let's pray together, please. Father, again, we do dedicate this moment to you. We thank you for being with us. Lord, we thank you, Holy Spirit, for being our great counselor and our teacher. And as you do so this morning, we pray that you would open up your word to us and communicate it into our hearts and give us the message, Lord. Speak to us what we need to hear from your word today. Lord, Move me aside. May your word be prominent in everything we say and do this morning. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of my favorite things to do, this is going to sound a little morbid, a little macabre probably, but Elaine and I both share this enjoyment, is to go to old cemeteries. Does anybody else enjoy doing that? I love to go to the old cemeteries, see the inscriptions, you know, just to see how people 
liked to mark their lives. We've been to them in Washington, D.C. We've been down to the old cemetery in Galveston, Texas. We went up to Lancaster, Pennsylvania to see some of Elaine's ancestors that came over with William Penn back in the late 1600s uh, before they moved on to Canada. And it's just a very interesting thing to look at these inscriptions and to see how people wanted to mark their lives. And in reality, it's the people who are left behind, usually, that mark their lives. Uh, I've got a few here that I'd like to read to you. And they're all supposedly, I know some of them, some of them or most of them for sure, are real inscriptions. There's a couple I might question a little bit. You'll see in a second. But first of all, Thomas Jefferson, he's laid to rest his body at, uh, in, in Charlottesville at, at, uh, at his home there in Monticello. And on his grave, he chose to put the author of the Declaration of Independence of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom and father of the University of Virginia. Noticed he didn't put President of the United States on there, but that's on his transcription for, or his, his uh, epitaph, that's what I'm trying to say. Merv Griffin, those of you who are old enough to know who Merv Griffin is, Merv Griffin was a talk show host. He was a producer of television shows like the Mary Tyler Moore Show and others like that. But in his talk show, he popularized the way television programs paused to go to a commercial break. And so Merv Griffin, this is for real, has on his tombstone, I will not be right back after this message. John Yeast, on his, this man named John Yeast says, here lies John Yeast, pardon me for not rising. An unknown atheist on the grave says, here lies an atheist all dressed up and no place to go. Winston Churchill on his burial place in the country, ta country town where, close to where he was born, not, not Westminster Abbey, but where he was born, has on his, I am ready to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. And then Benjamin Franklin, my favorite, says the body of Benjamin Franklin, printer, lies here, food for worms. Yet the work itself shall not be lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more beautiful edition corrected and amended by its author, Benjamin Franklin. Uh, on my parents' gravestone, my sister and I got together, and we decided to put the verse, Psalm 33:11, to represent what we hope our family will represent, and that is, the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of His heart through all generations. I turned 64 this January, and I, the realization came to me that I've probably lived at least, if not more, than 80% of my life already. And that's assuming I, I get to 80. So that's a very questionable assumption, and we can never assume, can we, that we'll have tomorrow. But at the very best scenario, I've probably passed 80% of my life. And have you noticed how as you go older, grow older, the time starts to get faster and faster and faster? I mean, that's, that's, that's not a unique phenomenon that any of us experience. It reminds me, it's, it's reminiscent really of, of the, the poem written by Robert Herrick that was popularized 
in the film Dead Poets Society that goes like this, gather ye rosebuds while ye may, old time is still a flying, and this same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. The glorious lamp of heaven, the sun, the higher he's a-getting, the sooner will his race be run, and nearer he is to setting. We are, in fact, faced, all of us, you and I, with four certain, immovable truths. First, God has granted each of us a finite number of days to live on this earth. The psalmist writes about this in Psalm 139, probably my second favorite psalm, but the psalmist writes, all the days for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Secondly, the life of every human being will soon pass from this existence, inevitably to be remembered and considered no more on this earth. I think of the PBS series, The Presidents, one of my favorites. I love documentaries. Uh, my wife and my son and I, my daughter's a little bored with that, but we like to watch these things. And uh, I like to watch this series called The Presidents. And they, these documentaries, each of them take a president and spends about two and a half hours on them. And it's interesting to see their lives, where they come from, their rise to power, their decline from power, and their death in most of the cases of these documentaries. At State, I worked for the 22 years I worked for the government under four presidents. And overseas travel was particularly interesting because when they would travel, all of them, uh, it was incredible the splendor and the pomp and the recognition they had by all these global audiences, particularly in places like Vietnam, where they weren't used to getting those high-level visitors like that, like President Clinton at the time. The authority and power they yielded was an awesome thing when you think about temporal human power. The respect and admiration that they commanded from their generation is something that kind of takes us aback a little bit when we look at that. And if we're not careful, we can admire that a little bit too much, you know, and start to kind of covet that a little bit, you know, if that's the kind of thing that appeals to us. But then each one of them left office, and all but four of them have died. And now they are silent. Their actions and their mark on history are already fading and eventually will fade into history. The psalmist in 103 writes, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. So thirdly, on the immovable truths front, only those things that we do, you and I here as disciples and followers of Jesus will last into eternity. I think of the great pyramids of Egypt. You've all seen pictures of those things. I think of the, the pharaohs that hoarded wealth, gold, made entire huge sarcophaguses of gold to put their dead bones in, their dead bodies. Just the, 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 the great extreme care they went to preserving what they thought they were going to take into the afterlife with them. Great monuments to themselves. Now they're empty and almost all, well, all of them that we know of have been raided 
uh, subsequent generations. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 3, any man, if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, this foundation, meaning the foundation that has been laid for us in Christ, us, he's speaking to the church here, the Corinthians, if anyone builds on that foundation, again, gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. And fourthly, what we do with our most precious resources says everything about what we believe. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, for wherever your treasure is, there your heart is also. So the question is, what is your treasure? What is your and my most valuable resource that we have? The most valuable resource. What is it that we can never gain back once it's gone? Time. Time. God has given us time on this earth. That is our most valuable resource to invest and to spend in ways that can either self-edify, that can either waste, as we also see in the Scriptures, or that we can use to build up the church, to build up one another, to build up our families in Jesus Christ in ways that will last into eternity. So, I want to kind of focus today then on this topic, redeeming the time, as a follow-up from where we were with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. How do we marshal these great gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us to actually move forward and redeem this time, this limited resource that God has given us to maximize our effectiveness in our time on this earth? Paul says uh, in verse 15, I'll read it again in the ESV, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. There's a couple of different translations for that best use of the time. I will save it for the exposition of that verse when we get there, but just keep that in mind as we go through that. But I like the, the, the ESV here. It captures it, making the best use of the time. So first, there are four, well, there are four charges that I, that, I, that I have kind of categorized myself. This is not the Scripture. This is me, but I, I kind of myself can find four charges, four commands, four instructions, general instructions that Paul is giving us in these first 17 verses of chapter 5 of Ephesians. Verse 1, he encourages us, therefore, be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. And this is imitators of God in all of our conduct with intentionality and with focus. I mean, perhaps it's possible to be an imitator of God if we're not thinking about it, if the Holy Spirit's residing in us, but I think God expects us to intentionally, He wants us to be deliberate about trying to imitate Him. And how do we do that? 
we dig into His Word and we find out what it is that the will of God is for us. And we'll find that here in this passage in a little bit as well. Ephesians chapter 4, just before this, reminds us, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. This taking off of the old and putting on the new is a consistent theme throughout Scripture, and it's integral for us to be able to really be able to redeem our time. I mean, we really should become more and more and more and more and more like Christ, shouldn't we, as we live? People should look at us as they did those early Christians who derogatorily got their names as Christians, little Jesuses walking around. We imitate our Master. We imitate our Master. It's interesting, the older I get, the more and more I get like my father, my dad. Uh, I, I see it in the mirror as I get older. I see it in my mannerisms. I'm reminded of it practically daily by my wife. And, uh, and it's, it's a good thing, I think, in most cases for me to be like him. But I look in the mirror, and the old phrase goes, mirror, mirror on the wall, I am my father after all. And it sure rests true for me. But the goal for us is to become more like our Heavenly Father, to become more like our Master, to look and study what He did and how He responded and what the Word tells us to be through the power of the Holy Spirit and deliberately, intentionally pursue that with our lives. Transformation through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that power of the Holy Spirit, remember we talked about this last week, not the gifts of the Spirit, but we exhibit the fruits of the Spirit, something that all of us exhibit as we live our lives in Christ. Last week I also mentioned, and Chris mentioned the week before that, born again. This idea of being born again also wraps up into this, the old passing away and the new coming. There's something different clearly about us. You know, it's interesting as we obey Christ and as we come to Him and as we we really want to be like Him, uh, we need to note the difference too. And I think a lot of this is the difference between a loving parent and a not-so-loving parent. Although there were times when I feared my dad. It was a good thing. It was a good thing. But there's a difference, and, there's a, there, and we, we, there are times when we fear God. I mean, God is an awesome, fearful thing. You know, if we were to be exposed to Him directly, we wouldn't survive. But there's a difference between the fear of punishment, the fear of what God will do to us if we don't live this way, and the fear of disappointment, because we want to please a loving Father. And that's what we aspire to, is that fear of disappointing Him. Verse 2 says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. Of course, Romans 5.8 gives us a clear definition of what that is, but God demonstrates His love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, while we hadn't even thought about Him, still continuing in our path of sin, Chuck Davis' commentary, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. First Peter 2.1 reads, this, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. Then moving on to verse 3, Paul continues by saying that sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. 
Now, the sexual immorality terminology here, that phrase includes other immoral, all immoral sexual behavior. That would be adultery, that would be fornication, that would be homosexual behavior. Uh, that would be, in, when you really drill down what Jesus had to say, that would be the adultery in our hearts, the, the, the covetousness of, of someone from, uh, in a sexual way, you know, in our hearts, looking at that. That is also this sexual immorality, sexual sin. Covetousness really is referring more to a jealous longing for what others possess. And it equates, according to Ephesians, to idolatry, setting up idols, looking at what other people have. I want that. It becomes an idol to us. The NIV here really gets this translation, I think, better than some of the others. It says, not even a hint of this should be among you. And in this Greek, it suggests that there's a public dimension to this, that we're looking at the church, looking at church people, looking at, uh, at, at God's body, you know, Jesus' body, the body of Christ from the outside, looking in, our public witness. We need it to be where people could never, uh, could never accuse us of such things. That's what we're looking for in our lives. And uh, Paul goes on in verse 4, filthiness, he includes filthiness, and the NIV it says obscenity. And I think a lot today of, of the things that we watch, the things that go into our mind visually, in films, on television, on internet screens, quietly in our back room when we think no one is watching. Foolish talk, coarse, crude joking, Continuing on the theme of impropriety, you know, Paul says that these are out of place for us. They're out of place. They shouldn't be something that characterizes us. And we should replace them with thanksgiving for all that God has done for us because we, praise God, are not that anymore. We have been made into something new that's moving toward the ultimate perfection in Christ. So the second charge that, uh, that I think that this passage, verses 5 to 7, kind of cover, and that's we need to avoid false teaching. And there, I think you'll agree with me, there's a lot of that out there. Paul says, for you may be sure, certain, you can take it to the bank, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, covetous, again, he's covering those three things, is, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He breaks into that with these things because I think that the false teaching that we had back then and much of the false teaching we have today deals with these very things. You'll see what I mean hopefully in a minute here. But again, we can take this to the bank, know with certainty that the people of God do not have this in their lives. Anyone that has this in their life as a habitual, it's okay for me to do this, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not because they have practiced such things in the past. We all have sinned, haven't we? That's the thing. We've all done things as bad or worse. Thank God He has saved us by His grace, though, through the blood of Christ, the sacrifice that Jesus gave for our behalf so that we don't have to pay the, the punishment for that sin. But what he's talking about here is the habitual continuation of this behavior. Uh, that it, it demonstrates that we are not 
genuine, born-again followers of Christ. You cannot have this kind of evil sin behavior in your life, a part of your life, embraced in your life, continuing it, I don't want to give this up, I like it too much, and be a follower of Christ. They're incompatible completely. And again, none of us are perfect yet. We're headed toward that goal that Jesus is going to make us that way. We're not going to be that way by our own efforts. He's going to perfect us. But now we are struggling against sin. We will continue to fall and slip in sin. It's just a part of what we are now in this fallen world. But the Bible encourages us to to do what I, I like to describe with a military term. If you've heard the military term, give no quarter. Give no quarter. It really is a military term that means take no prisoners. Kill them all zero tolerance for the enemy's presence in our camp. Take, give, I'm sorry, give no quarter to sin in your life. Give no quarter. In verse 6, Paul writes, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So then and now, some teach that we can live, and be Christians, unrepentant lives. Paul calls them here sons of disobedience, a term that's inspired by Hebrew, by the Hebrew terminology. And it indicates, again, this habitual, casual living in sin while professing some kind of faith, you know. It brings disrepute to the body of Christ. And by this, People that engage in this and embrace sin in this way demonstrate that they actually are indeed children of Satan, and such obedience leads to the wrath of God. And that's a hard thing to hear, because we like to hear love and flowers and blooms, don't we? And there's a whole body of teachers, like Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, says, people have gathered around themselves to tell them what their itching ears want to hear. But God is a holy God, and we cannot love and embrace our sin while loving and embracing Him. The third charge is live in the light. Live in the light. Verses 8 and 9, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And that fruit of light kind of evokes the imagery that we talked about before, too, the fruit of the Spirit that that works its way through us naturally, all of us, as the Holy Spirit indwells in us. The fruit of light, when we have that light in us, that's a byproduct of the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling in our lives, we're going to bear much fruit. And this is the fruit we're talking about. Verse 10, Paul says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The New International Version says, find out what pleases the Lord. And the word here, the Greek word is uh, dokimazo, dokimazo. And it means basically to prove as if you're in a court of law or as if you're in a scientific lab using the scientific method to prove something. The truth is there. The truth is already there. You're not creating the truth. It is there. You just need to find it. You are trying to find it and discover it and apply it and make it known. 
That's the concept we're talking about here. In verses 11 and 12, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. Again, Paul's accentuating the differences between darkness that we used to live in and light that now characterizes our inner being. We expose the lies of this dark culture with the light of the truth in our lives and in our words and in our actions and in our beliefs. We expose the lies of this dark culture with the light of God's Word, which informs all of this, doesn't it? (laughs) In fact, there's nothing that we have that's been informed to us that doesn't come from the Word of God. The Holy Spirit, like we said last week, is never going to work contrary to the Word of God. And so if you hear anybody that tells you, the Holy Spirit told me this, regardless, notwithstanding what this says in the Bible, run. Go the other way. They are speaking from lies. And finally, the light of the Holy Spirit, which lives in you, exposes the lies in this dark culture. Fourthly, the charge that we have on this is make the most of the time that you have, and then we really begin to get to the root of the matter that we're talking about today in verses 15 to 17. Ephesians 5, 15 to 7, uh, 17, in the NIV, the International Version. We read the ESV a while ago. Let me show you what this says. It says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. And the NIV says, making the most of every opportunity, making the most of every opportunity. I think the ESV and the King James get it better when they actually specifically mention time, because that's what he's talking about, you know, making the most of the time you've got, that, that limited resource. Make the most of everything, all time slots that you have. Make the most of it, because the days are evil. And um, in fact, I love the, the King James language where it says, redeeming the time, which perhaps is the most accurate of all the translations, ironically. Redeeming the time. Redeeming. That word for redeem is, it's hard to pronounce for me, exagorazo, exagorazo in Greek. And it means basically to, to ransom, to buy off, to redeem, to redeem. And it suggests the idea of rescuing something, rescuing, rescuing your time rescuing the time that you are prone to waste, prone to spend on yourselves, and taking it and marshalling it and using it to glorify Christ in your life. So let's, uh, as we move on here quickly, let's take a look at two questions as we move more into application of what this Scripture is telling us. First of all, what is necessary for you and I to redeem the time in our lives. What is, what's the essentials? What do we need, first of all? And then secondly, what does redeeming the time not look like? Unfortunately, in our culture today, I think there's a whole lot more examples of what it isn't than what it is. So let's take a look at a few of those. It's not exhausted by any stretch of the imagination. But So first of all, what is the starting point to redeem the time in your life? Yeah, I used to be puzzled by three types of of, of Christians, I put that in quotation, three types of people who call themselves Christians. First of all, I I was puzzled by those who who never demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Have you seen those folks? You know, they've come into the church, they're members, but you know, you just really, it's, you know, you don't want to, we're not called to be judges, although we do judge what goes on inside the church, don't we? We discern and, and have to make applications of judgment inside the church. 
We don't judge the world, that's God's job. We look at what's inside our body. But people that just don't seem to reflect at all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the opposites sometimes, that's always puzzled me. Secondly, those who exhibit little difference in their lives from the patterns of this world. You know, the old saying, you go on Saturday night, you see them doing the, the party scene with everybody else, and then they're in Sunday school and church the next morning on Sunday. It's that, that no difference whatsoever in their lives. And you know what the world says about that when they look at those and go, yeah, he's a charity, he goes to church, there's no difference in him. And what's the word they typically associate with that? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. Somebody that professes something, but they really don't take it on and live it and act it and embrace it. They're lying with their lives. And thirdly, those who, and this is the thing that, that, and I've seen this, and maybe you have too, those who have called themselves Christians who turn their backs on the faith completely. Uh, There's a couple of examples. Elaine and I had, and this was Elaine's friend. I'm not going to name any names. I won't try to get very specific. But in college, this young woman was a pillar of discipleship with our Baptist student ministry, with, with, the, with the ladies' dorm. She was at, at, the, at the church in Abilene that was considered to be the most spiritual, you know, that kind of thing. You've seen, you know, churches that are supposed to be the most spiritual. It's funny how college students work sometimes. I used to be one. But, uh, but, but you know, she was really on fire on every respect that you could tell. She actually even coached and discipled Elaine in some of the things that she was struggling with and helped her through these things. The young woman went off to seminary. I won't say which one, but I will say it's the one I went to, but, <laughs> but she went, went to seminary, and it had nothing to do with the seminary teaching. She just started to become hardened, a bitter about the fact of things that were going on in her life. She went to seminary, she got her degree, and she basically left the faith, and she became, well, she embraced a lesbian lifestyle, and then she went to work as the director for an abortion clinic in Austin. I look at this and I just, what's going on with that? Another one, my Greek professor, first year Greek professor in seminary, we used to call him the weeping prophet, Jeremiah, because he would exposit the Greek and and actually translate it as he's going and tell us, you know, what the Greek is saying and we'd work on it. And he would actually come to tears and weep while he was actually telling us about the gospel in the Gospel of Mark, which is what we were translating. And he ended up meeting another woman on a plane, casual encounter, having an illicit affair with her, leaving his wife and baby, and leaving the seminary and the church. I I don't get that. I do a little bit better now, though, since I read Jesus' parable about the sower. That helps me a lot. So let's take a look at that real quickly to help understand this, this, this again. I'm just going to read some of what it says in Matthew 13, this story that Jesus says. He says, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came out, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. And then he goes on, Jesus, after this, 
a little while later when the disciples are questioning, what does this all mean? And he explains it to them. I won't read all of it, but basically the seed along the path, seed along the path, Jesus explains it, that when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, doesn't quite get it, it never sprouts, it never germinates, it's just there, the evil one comes and snatches it away. He snatches away what was sown in his heart. That's the first kind of seed. The other kind that fell on rocky places, the one who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. You've seen that. You've seen people that do that. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. And then you got another kind yet, the seed that fell among the thorns. And frankly, this is the one I can relate to a little bit better, I think, and maybe a lot of us will as well. And this is the man who hears the word, but the worries and the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. We live in the wealthiest country in the world. We're under a recession almost right now. We may already be under one. You know, we've got inflation. We complain about, you know, how we are having trouble meeting our bills with, you know, with the rising cost of things. But folks, we live in the most wealthy country in the world. And, uh, and, and we don't know poverty like some people do. Wealth is deceitful. And it will anesthetize us into thinking other things that are important, thinking about other things as more important than they should be, that will cloud and squeeze and drown out the gospel in our lives. And that's exactly what's happened with this seed. Wealth choked it out, making it unfruitful. And then finally, there was the seed that fell on good soil. The man who hears the word and understands it, the seed grows, he produces a crop yielding 160, 30 times what was sown. I think this should be named, really, we call it, Jesus doesn't name it, but, you know, we put our little titles on there, the parable of the sower. I think it ought to be the parable of the seed because we're, the, the sower is the same, isn't he? And the seed that is sown is the same. I'm sorry, did I say the seed? I meant the soil, the par parable of the soil, of the different kinds of soil. The seed is the same. The soil is the variable. And we don't know, do we? Sometimes we can't tell as in these people that Elaine and I experienced, whether they're the real deal, they appear to be, and who knows, in the end, they might have been, and they may have gone into a period of deep rebellion, and God will bring them back. We don't know. We can only pray for them. But the seed is the same. The soil is the variable. I think of the great evangelical error that we have, too, and that is, you know, I grew up with this. Walk the aisle, dunk them, get them in the baptistry, Stick them in the pew, and then you're a child of God. You're in the club. We can forget about you. And that is a great error, in my view, a great error. It overlooks the central identifier that is the evidence of faith, which is what we're trying to get to now, this point. This is why we have an American church that looks and acts very much like the world around it, doesn't it? So what is that central identifier? that should differentiate us and demonstrate our faith and is thus instrumental to redeeming our time on earth. We've already talked about it some here, but let me put a word on it. Let me just put a word label on this and let's look at scripture to help us get to that word. In Jeremiah, the prophet says, if you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Peter says, 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul, in two occasions, in Acts, he says, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. And then he says to the Corinthians, again, godly sorrow brings about repentance that leads to salvation. And from the one about whom Jesus said, among born, those born of women, there has arisen no one greater, John the Baptist, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do you see the theme here? You see the theme? Repentance. Defined is a 180 degree turn from where you were before. A 180 degree turn. Repentance, turning completely away from where you were and going in a new direction. And I think, I mean, I would doubt seriously that there's anybody in this room that has experienced Christ, uh, particularly as an adult, when you've had the life experiences to be going one way and Jesus has made such a difference in your life, you see the difference that, that He puts you in, the different direction that He focuses and points you in. It's marked. And we need to be seeing that in our lives because that is the thing that the world will see clearly and understand. Something's going on here. I don't know if I like it or not, but something's going on here that's real. That's real. So, last week, you know, we also talked about the Holy Spirit. One of His roles is convicting us of sin. Always remember that to repent we must recognize, agree with God on our sin, and hate our sin. That's what we need to do. That's part of the repentance process. The psalmist says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Wow. But what does our culture tell us about sin? It says, you're okay just the way you are. You deserve it all. You can have it all. It's all about you. You're okay. You're okay. There's really no such thing as sin. People just make bad choices sometimes. The road to hell is paved with these kinds of statements. And those who teach them are false teachers that we need to flag and note and stay away from. Finally, what does redeeming the time not look like? Well, first of all, I will say that it does not look like a life that neglects Christ Himself. I mean, to this point, the entire book of Ephesians has been hammering at it, you know, hammering it home on these foundational truths, Jesus reconciling sinners to God and to one another, Jesus coming to reverse the effects of sin, believers being built up into a new creation in Christ, each of us having a God-given role in this work through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Also, Christ must be at the very center of our universe. And this is the thing that, that marked mostly, I guess, my life before and after Christ. Jesus became, you've heard this before, my all in all. He became the center of my centrifuge. Everything else spun out from that. And am I perfect in this regard? Heavens, no, and I won't be. But He is the focal point. He is the center. Without this, we are like the one, if we try to do things, you know, uh, even good things, we're like the one who builds on that foundation we talked about earlier, using wood, hay, or straw. 
our time is ultimately wasted, and our greatest achievements will not survive the judgment. Redeeming the time also does not look like a life relying on one's own abilities and resources. And boy, that's really what we're often guilty about in America, isn't it? And in the Western church. It's not the power of positive thinking, Norman Vincent Peale. It's not good time management. It's not sound financial principles. These are, these are not necessarily bad things. In fact, most of the time, these are good things in their proper context. But they do not calculate into redeeming our time for the Lord. Uh, when depending on ourselves alone, we, fought, we fought, really, we fail to step out of our comfort zone often, don't we? And follow Christ in faith. It makes it hard for us to do that when we're just depending on ourselves because we can kind of see what our limitations are, don't we? You know what your limitation is. I know what mine, mine are. And, and that's all I can see. I can't see beyond those sometimes. So it makes it very difficult for us to step out in faith. Uh, you know, when we're depending on ourselves, we really, we avoid situations that might cause us inconvenience or discomfort. We tend to be avoiding situations that might require that we trust God a little bit. Unable to believe that God's best is somehow less satisfying than our plenty. So like the unfaithful servant who buried his gift and didn't do anything with it, you know, don't like, be like the man whose epitaph, here we go on the epitaph theme again, read, here lies the bones of David Jones. In life, he had no terrors. He never risked, but he never lost. No hits, no runs, no errors. Did nothing with his life. Redeeming the life requires that we are led by the Holy Spirit, not working from our own strength, not according to our own priorities, but new birth in Christ and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Redeeming the time also does not look like a life of remaining in one's sin. And I could speak on this forever, you know, because I think this is one of the things, again, that the world tells us is okay. You can still sin and you're fine, you're okay. And somehow we translate into the church and we have false teachers who communicate that to the church. Our sin is what caused the breach between us and God in the first place. Our sin, yours and mine. Christ died to save us from that sin, to make us holy. If there's no sin, if it's not a big deal, why did he have to do that? And remember, sin is a cancer. It will grieve the Holy Spirit, suck the spiritual life right out of you, destroy your witness if you embrace it and you continue in it. Habitual continuation of sin demonstrates that we are not genuine, born-again followers of Jesus, full stop. This is the proof that you're going to see in the believer's life. The, the, the fruits of the Spirit, as Paul talks about, the fruit of bearing much fruit, being plugged into the vine, as Jesus talks about it. Redeeming the time means that advancement and productivity, everything that we do to be successful inside and outside the church, are subordinate to practical holiness. And I don't usually like to name names when I'm up here like this, but we all know someone we loved and adored and, and, and respected and put up on a pedestal, Ravi 
Zacharias. We've watched his videos. We've seen him go before great crowds of, of, of questioners and be able to address the Word of God and, and be able to, with lightning fast reaction and laser focus, apply biblical principles and truth to questions. But we saw what happened to his life when he continued to embrace sin. Simple practice. Again, give no quarter to sin. Don't entertain it. Don't think that it's at all okay. When it comes, recognize it, repent of it, confess it to the Lord, and move on. Give it no quarter. Finally, redeeming the time does not look like a life focused on one's own aspirations. Ultimately, pursuing your way, your dream, your plans. And again, we live in a world that tells us to follow your dreams, doesn't it? And I know what they're saying, but in adopting that philosophy, what we all too often tend to do is place the, the realization and the pursuit and, the, and the, the ultimate accomplishment of our dreams at the top of our priority list of all that we're about as people. When that needs to be a secondary thing that centers out, that comes out from our relationship with Christ. Yeah, Jesus gives us dreams. Yes, he gives us aspirations. Yes, the Holy Spirit inspires us to be certain things and to, and to accomplish things for the kingdom of God. And often that, as it did with Daniel in the Bible, as it did with Joseph, that, that comes with, with accolades from the world around us. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't. I, uh, I think you all remember a guy named Frank Sinatra, and he wrote a song uh, that I like to quote here at this point, and it goes like this, and now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear, I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. For what is man, what has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. There is no such thing as a true follower of Jesus who can honestly say, I did it my way, and I'm proud of it. Matthew 7 writes, records Jesus saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only who? Those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Well, there's one other kind of believer that I wanted to mention real quickly. I'm running out of time fast, so I'm trying to assess that up here if I have time to share this with you or not. But let me try to do it quickly. I'm puzzled by retired people because it hits home with me. A lot of our friends, people that we've known, American friends overseas, people that 
that we've worshipped with, that we've studied the Bible with. Expatriates overseas, part of American companies, great companies that you would recognize. Lovely people, good people. Served and worshipped again, like I said, together at churches around the, around the world. And they did very well in their careers and accumulated a lot. And now they're retired. And there's nothing wrong with all of that, you know. We've bought a house ourselves and we've retired and we're trying to kind of figure out what ministries we, we, we want to get involved in. But seeing the focus of their life, the very focus of their life, you see things like things that are centered on luxurious and exotic travel, building luxurious homes around the world and in different exotic places and locations selected primarily for their beauty, comfort, and personal enjoyment. Dream, the, the, buying that, that new dream car, and I'm talking six-figure dollar cars, you know, making large investments in leisure, all kinds of leisure activities, big investments on that. And again, in their proper place, I'm not saying that these are bad things, but the focus on them is a bad thing. And I, I, I struggle. It's as if they don't see that their time on this earth as retired people is running out. This is the final chapter in their life. This is it. After this, this dispensation of time, they have no more. And their legacy is sealed. Rather than focus focusing even more diligently on doing their part to build up the body of Christ rather than investing in younger believers who need the example, encouragement, and prayer support from a more experienced generation, rather than making the most of the scarce time that's remaining, they spend it on making themselves and their immediate family members happy, entertained, bringing into question what do you really believe? The fact is, every phase of life that we experience is this way, not just retirement. So, I'm, you know, I, I'm saying retirement because that's where I am right now. But every phase is this way. You in this room who are children right now, coming to faith in Jesus, you have a phase in your life that's important. As you consider what it is that you're going to do with Jesus for your life, Teenagers in this room struggling with school and, and who you will become and what you'll do when you grow up. You have things to consider and wrestle with when it comes to who is Jesus to me in my life. Young adults establishing yourselves in your families. We've got a lot of you guys here. And I love it when I see you guys focusing on Jesus and making that the centerpiece. Those of you at the apex of your lives and careers, at the, at the very pinnacle of it. You're in a phase that needs to be focused on him as well. Not just those who have little time left. And after all, none of us really know, do we, how much time we have left. We simply don't know. So my prayer for us as we close today is that we would make the most of the precious gift that God has given us. We're not going to get it back. Make the most of it. That we would better understand what investments we make that will produce eternal returns and redeem our time to make that time matter into eternity. As the psalmist writes, 
Teach us to number our days aright, O Lord, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Let's pray together as we close. Holy Spirit, we thank you for, again, counseling us, giving us wisdom and discernment, instructing us, teaching us as we open up your word. And we thank you for these truths that you've shown us this morning. Lord, I pray that they would land in our hearts and in every heart of every person in this room, they would find good soil and grow up into great fruitfulness in the lives of all of our people in this church. Lord, we, we, we seek to glorify you and praise you and walk with you. Teach us how as we do so. And Lord, I thank you for the gifts of the Spirit that you've given our body. And again, help us all to appreciate one another in our differences, in our different perspectives, as long as we are focused on the one for whom we are here for, Jesus the Master. It's in his name we pray today and we always pray. Amen.